Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as always, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. The governor and I aren't even in the same party. If this turns out to be a false alarm, he'll make me out to be the biggest fool west of the Mississippi. Hey, nice. Mississippi. Yeah, you know what? That's the site of several faults. Actually, <laughs> one great big fault. There are lots of faults everywhere, and it's not my fault. No. Before we get into whose fault it is, let's talk about listener mail. By the way, this is not his fault. This listener mail comes from Joe, and Joe says, Earthquake! No, just kidding. I live in Christchurch, New Zealand, and I've been through two major earthquakes, and I was wondering if you could do a podcast on how they measure earthquakes. Cheers, Joe. Joe, we're very glad that you are okay. Definitely so. Definitely so. That was a scary situation. If you don't know, um, uh, just a few weeks ago, as of when we're recording this, in very late February 2011, there was a pretty significant earthquake, to say the very least, that hit New Zealand. Um, and, uh, you know, 
several people lost their lives as a result of this. Yes. Um, and, of course, these things are very damaging both to people and property. So yes. it's uh, it, w- it would be nice if we could do a lot of prediction and give you a heads up from when these things are coming. But I, I'm afraid at this point about the best we can do is let you know how big they were and maybe get an idea of uh, what you might expect from an aftershock. Yeah. As when it turns it- out, uh, predicting an earthquake is not exact science. No, no. Uh, but we have learned quite a bit about earthquakes. And before we get too far into this, <clears throat> I should just point out that a couple of our sister podcasts have covered similar topics. Uh, Stuff You Should Know has done an entire episode on how earthquakes work. It's actually one of their older episodes, but mm-hmm. it's it's excellent. So uh, you can listen to that if you are interested in the topic. And the Stuff of Genius did an episode about an early pioneer in seismology. Which and we'll talk about him in a little bit, just because mm-hmm, it's a mm-hmm. it's too cool not to talk about, right? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so an earthquake, you know, we most of us probably know exactly what someone means when they say earthquake. It's mm-hmm. it's an event in which the ground is shaking, right? Right. The earth is Quakes. quaking. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, they they can be caused from uh from many many different related types of movement in the earth. Now, sure. um, it's pretty well uh pretty well known at this point that the Earth's crust is made up of many plates. And there are different kinds of they're, – they're moving in different ways. Right. Um, I'm, I'm going back to my undergraduate days when I actually took a uh, geology class, mm-hmm. uh, which I found fascinating but didn't go into it, obviously, as a career field. But um, in, in some cases, one plate is going underneath another plate. In yes. other cases, they're rubbing against one another in a in, you know along – you know, one is going north while the other is going south. Mm-hmm. And and gradually what happens is uh, tension builds up. I'm oversimplifying here. But ten- tension builds up, and when the tension is released, that causes an earthquake. And they can be, you know, small enough that you don't even notice it. Right. Um, but some of the equipment we're going to talk about today can detect that. Of course, yeah. others, um, like the earthquake in New Zealand and, and famous earthquakes. Uh, like in, in Haiti. And- in Haiti, in, uh, in California, mm-hmm. in uh, Japan, mm-hmm. um, and and my favorite fault, the New Madrid fault in the middle of the United States. Again, that would be the one near right. the Mississippi and all the mm-hmm. others around it. Um, you know, those, those can can be very, very serious. So, uh, you know, scientists have been trying to figure out for... A long time. We'll say a very, very, yes. very long time. Millennia, in fact. Yes. Um, exactly how to measure the effect of the earth shaking. So let's talk about <clears throat> what actually happens, and then we can talk about how we uh, how we measure it. Now, you okay. gave a good overview. Yeah. yeah there's... That, like I said, that's just a nutshell, very, very, very basic version. Right, yeah. Three basic ways that plates move against each other, right? Mm-hmm. They either move apart. Yes. Or they move together. True. Or they slide against each other. Right. That's about it. Uh, the By the way, if you're talking about a plate going underneath another, that's called subducting. Mm-hmm. Um, just so you guys know. And when plates uh, when plates meet, uh, it pushes rock and dirt together. That's what actually forms mountains. Yes. Uh, besides, uh, there's also volcanic mountains. Mm-hmm. So there's some mountains that are formed through volcanic activity. But in general, mountains are formed... When two plates press up against each other and they crinkle, essentially. Yes. Um, <clears throat> now, uh, when these these uh, these events happen, these these plate events. By the way, there are other things that can cause an earthquake. 
mm-hmm. uh, like an explosion, can cause the essentially a, a localized earthquake. Mm-hmm. A meteoric impact can cause an earthquake, that kind of thing. But most of them are caused by these these plate movements. Yes, um, there's about eight thousand of them each day, and most of them are. Uh, beneath our level of of being able to perceive them. Mm -hmm. And, of course, lots of them are happening in places where there's really little to no human habitat there. So uh, we wouldn't necessarily notice it even if it were a significant earthquake because no one's there, Mm -hmm. right? It might be under the ocean or anything like that. Um, And like you were saying, where the plates meet, that's a fault. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, any place where two two plates are meeting, that's a fault. Uh, when, When there is an earthquake... Energy radiates out from the center of that earthquake in seismic waves. Yes. Mm-hmm. And these waves are what you would, you know, when you think of a wave, that's what we're talking about. It's uh, energy moving in a, a wavelength. There's there's a, a, a peak and there's a trough mm-hmm. through this wave. And uh, there's actually two waves that move out from an earthquake. Yes. He's talking about the P wave. Yes. In which uh, those those waves move in the direction that they're they're being propagated. Yes. Um, and then the S wave, which is perpendicular to that. Right. And the P wave uh, moves faster than the S wave. It actually uh, goes about between one to five miles per second. Mm-hmm. It tends to be 1.7 times faster than the uh, than the S wave. Mm-hmm. So this has become a key for us to figure out where earthquakes are uh, originating, right? Mm-hmm. Because you measure the time between the primary wave and the secondary wave, and that will tell you in general how far away the focus is. It doesn't tell you the direction. Mm-mm. It will just tell you, you know, you feel a shaking and then you feel a second shaking. You take the time between that. You do a little calculation. You figure, all right, so the center of this earthquake is 50 miles away. Mm-hmm. But it could literally be 50 miles in any direction uh, on the surface. You, right. you can discount the directions that are directly below you and directly above you and all that. Like anything in the air, not going to matter. Right. Um, so... That's that's the basics of earthquakes. We'll talk a little bit about the measuring. Let's 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 take a little walk back into history. Okay. By a couple of millennia, this is the uh, guy that we were talking about in the stuff of genius, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, came up with an interesting seismoscope. Now, a seismoscope is a an, an instrument, any instrument that indicates that motion has occurred, but it does not give you more information than that, right? Right. It can't necessarily tell you where it was coming from. It can't necessarily tell you um, – it can't give you like a, a reading over a duration of time. It just tells you, hey, stuff moved around. So basically if you've seen Jurassic Park, when that dinosaur is coming up on you and you watch the the motion in the uh, – The glass in the, of water. In the glass of water. That's that would a, be a seismoscope. Yes, it's a very primitive seismoscope. <laughs> but a slightly – and I stress slightly – more sophisticated seismoscope – was invented by a Chinese philosopher named Chong Heng. Yes, in 132. Yeah, 132 A.D. Yes, that, yeah. that's not that. That's not 132 not, in the afternoon. Right. That's the year 132. It was a Wednesday. Yeah. Um, no, Chang Heng came up with this really cool design. We we've mm-hmm. actually seen examples of this, and and you know, uh, not just. It's it's not just a theory that these mm-hmm. things actually existed. Though, yes. Though their their actual the way they worked is somewhat of a mystery. We've got a couple of ideas of how they could have worked, but but we'll get to that. So mm-hmm. basically, what you had was a wine jar. Yes, it was it was cylindrical. You know, think of it as a sort of cylindrical shape yeah. standing on end. So like a jar. 
Yeah, six feet in diameter. So we're wow. not talking like a little jar. No, this would be a big jar. And mounted to the jar, on the jar, were eight dragon head spouts that faced in the cardinal directions. Yes, and that would be at the very top of the jar, yeah. from what from what I understand. It can be anywhere from the above the middle to the top. Okay. Anything on the top half of, of the jar is... that's Because I've actually seen pictures of these. There are images of these on the internet of various... People have made recreations of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so within the, each dragon's mouth, there's essentially a marble or stone. Right. And uh, so, so those are balanced within the, the mouths of the dragons. And then underneath the, uh, the dragon mouths are these little ceramic frogs with open mouths. Yes. And the idea here is that if there's an earthquake that is significant enough for it to set this seismoscope off... It'll rattle the, the, the pebbles, and the pebbles that are facing the direction that the earthquake is coming from uh, would theoretically fall out of the dragon's mouth into the frog mouth. So then you could look in and say, all right, this is coming from somewhere in the north-northeast region. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't tell you how far away it's gonna the, the earthquake was, but let's say that you're in uh, ancient China – and you are overseeing a large amount of land. I mean, communication is not fast. No. But seeing something like that happen, you could say, well, now I know that there's some problems to the north of us. I should expect uh, some people to come and ask me for help, or maybe I should send uh, 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 perhaps it came from the direction that an enemy is in. Mm-hmm, perhaps mm-hmm. you would want to send a, a group of uh, troops out there to see, like, hey, were they weakened enough for us to kind of come in and mop up? Right. So this isn't this isn't just a uh, a diversion, uh, you know, just something that you do for fun. It really had a practical use. Right. Um, now, now the point where I said it might be a, b- a bit of a mystery is that we're not sure what was inside the jar. Mm-hmm. There are some who think that the jar had perhaps a pendulum suspended from the top of the jar. That so it's it's actually you know the 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 base of the the weight of the pendulum would be inside the jar. That's funny that you would mention that because I have the feeling that will come up again. Yes. And this is because you need an inertial mass mm-hmm. in, in most of these seismoscopes. You need something that is not going to move in relation to the rest of the instrument because one of the big challenges of measuring earthquakes, I mean, it sounds silly, but it's true, is that you have to design a tool that can measure something even when the uh, the tool itself is moving, mm-hmm. right? Like, right. you know, if the earth is quaking and the tool is on the earth – then how do you get a reliable measurement? Well, this idea of an inertial mass becomes very important with later uh, seismometers. So, um, yeah, that that was one possibility. Another possibility was a reverse pendulum. Mm -hmm. A reverse pendulum is essentially a a flexible pole with With, a weight at the end of it. Right. The weight is on on the top. Right. And the idea here is that a significant... uh, uh, quake would cause the pendulum to swing, perhaps hitting the inside of the jar, and that's what would then cause the stone in that dragon's mouth to fall into the the frog's mouth. Right. And then it's six more weeks of winter. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm yeah, mixing so, stuff up. I'm a little bit. Uh, I'm on cold medication. Uh, what do you want from me? Right. So yeah, um, in in doing some research, uh, I read in in uh, Britannica that uh, in Italy in the 17th century. Um, uh, a seismoscope there used spilling water to show, you know, what was going on, whether there was an earthquake uh, taking place. And um, another, they also used a lot of mercury 
Uh, I know that's probably not a surprise, but uh, yeah, a cup mm. of mercury, which would be would probably be a pretty good indicator given its color. Um, yeah, too bad you'd be crazy by the time the earthquake hit. Now, see, you're getting into the tiny details that are just you're just ruining the magic for me. Sorry. Um, <laughs> and uh, and then there was uh, Luigi Palmieri who uh, had a seismometer to uh, detect. You know, the motion during an earthquake. He had uh, a series of U-shaped tubes that, again, used mercury. Um, and then there was a, a clock hooked up to that. And um, what would happen is the, the motion would cause an electrical clock to stop and to start a recording drum. Um, basically, there was a float on top of the mercury. And the drum was keeping track of the float's motion as it moved. It would tell you the time and intensity of the earthquake. So, um, so that makes it more that that's why we would refer to that as a seismometer, that is a or, seismometer or yes. even a seismograph because seismograph essentially that that graph means to draw yes but it's it's essentially meaning that you are recording the event of the earthquake and there's some element of time there where you can actually uh, see the earthquakes um, movements over time and be able to say this is when it started this is when it ended mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and um, and that's what sets it apart from the seismoscopes which essentially just tell you, hey, something's moving out there. Yes, yes. Which, you know, a lot of us can do. Not um, everybody. <laughs> On a good day, I can do it. The rabbits, they're agitated. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about what it takes to get a uh, one of the, some of the challenges in creating a seismograph. Well, there's one very big challenge. Which is? To overcome. Friction. That's a big one. Because, see, in, in a seismograph... In a lot of cases, especially the earlier seismographs, you would want to use a uh, a, a marking device, a pen, and yeah. a piece of paper, essentially. Um, and uh, the problem is that the in order to be sensitive, uh, the, the pen is marking on the paper, right? Right. When, to record the Earth's motion. Um, but the problem is that it has to overcome the friction of the pen on the paper. Right. And if it's a very, very subtle quake, then it, the friction may be too great for the pen to move. Right. Um, and that, that is a, a very big challenge. It, it doesn't seem like it would be that big. But right. if you think about it, uh, you know, if you had a um, – I would imagine, too, for older pens before ballpoint-type technology – is created mm-hmm. if you had something like some of these um, seismographs where it was constantly moving, um, where the paper was constantly moving under the pen. I'm not sure how you would distribute ink to it unless it worked sort of like a fountain pen. And I didn't actually research that. I wish yeah. I had because now I'm, I'm kind of intrigued. Yeah, let's we'll <laughs> yeah, look at after the, the podcast. But yeah, I mean, uh, that the seismograph is not uh, a 20th century innovation. No. And, you know, the ballpoint pen, uh, well, it wasn't either, but the seismograph goes back farther. Yeah. So another big challenge is that you have to you have to segregate the seismograph from other structures. Yes. So for example, here in our building, it wouldn't do us much good to have a seismograph here. No. Because the vibrations that we would create in the building, the vibrations from traffic passing outside, the seismograph would pick all that up and we get a lot of false readings, mm-hmm. false positives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you've ever been on the top floor of a parking deck when people are leaving at rush hour, right? I mean, you'll feel the motion of the cars moving, and sometimes they'll, you know, you can bounce around a little bit depending on the parking deck. So, the the key to having a very good seismograph is finding a way so that you can uh, you can connect it to the bedrock of whatever region you're in. I will. I will try to resist. Don't do Flintstones. I hated that cartoon. Oh, man. Really? Yeah, despised it. Oh. 
with the heat of a thousand exploding right. suns. Well, we won't get into that. Okay. Um, but yes, you have to connect it to the bedrock, and then once it's connected to the bed bedrock and and completely separate from other buildings, so it's not getting uh, essentially uh, pollution, really, because mm-hmm. vibration, pollution. vibration, pollution, yeah. Um, then you can be more uh, more sure that the readings you get reflect what's actually going on with the Earth as opposed to localized um, events. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, it's interesting. This idea of the inertial mass ends up being really, really important. Yes. And there's it's, it's funny because um, uh, pendulums have been used for a very, very, very long time in uh, seismological circles. Um, because if you have a, a pendulum hanging and, and it's free of vibration pollution, then um, it's just going to hang there until something acts on it because of the laws of inertia. Right. Basically, an object at rest tends, tends to, to stay, stay at rest. rest. Um, but there's something else, too. You also have to have a damper because of the laws of inertia. Because an object in motion tends to stay in motion. Right. So you have to have both if you're going to have an accurate uh, seismometer. Because you, it, if once the pendulum starts to move with the earth as it starts to shake, uh, it will continue to do that. And uh, from, from, what I've un, from what I understand, you need some kind of dampening material in order for it to get an accurate representation of how much the earth is moving. Right. Um, which is kind of funny. I, I wouldn't necessarily have thought about that. But yes, it, the pendulum is just going to keep swinging and you'll ne- you really won't have an idea. It's OK. Well, this is it. Was it a serious earthquake or was it a, a very, very mild earthquake? And you can tell both from the pendulum moving and the inertial damper that's that stops it from moving as much. Right. Uh, one one way to imagine there, there are a couple of different uh variations on the seismometer basic design but one way to imagine it is imagine you've got a stand and from the stand hangs a very uh a very sensitive spring Mm -hmm. a very tight spring and there's a weight on the end of that spring so it's above the ground it's just it's hanging there it's not moving up and down it's it's at rest it's just the weight is hanging from the spring not moving at all there is a pen attached to the weight Mm-hmm. And the pens, uh, uh, the top of the pen is, or the the the, the ink <laughs> is resting. The nib. The nib. Thank you. Like words gone. Jonathan, the ap- upset. The nib of the pen is resting against a piece of paper that's on a spool that's constantly turning. Right. Giving fresh paper to the pen. So when there's an earthquake, if there's up and down motion, this is a, you know a vertical seismometer there are different kinds so uh, the the weight tends to stay still uh ir- you have to step outside the context of the earth which is kind of weird to say but you have to do it the earth is the the mass is maintaining its space uh and then the the everything else is moving up and down mm-hmm. in relation to the the weight mm-hmm. and that's the basis for most seismometers there's also a kind where it's similar, except the the uh, it's it's a horizontal seismometer in which there's a um, oh. imagine a stand, okay, mm-hmm. but now you've got a long pole mm-hmm. that sticks out uh, halfway through the the stand, right? And so it's a horizontal pole that's connected. It's got a it's got a, a hinge on it, so it can move left and right in relation to the stand. Mm-hmm. 
And then uh, there's also a spring attached from the top of the stand to the uh, the far end of the pole. Right. All right. You've got you've got your weight there at the far end of the pole, and you, again you've got your pen attached to it. The pen's nib is against the paper. Now, when there's an earthquake that does side to side motion, the uh, the lever can swing to the left and to the right. the The spring acts as the dampener. Mm-hmm. It amount because uh, it's it's a high tension spring. So the weight will move back and forth. Uh, again, really, the the paper is moving back and forth against the weight, uh, and that's how you get your readings for uh, horizontal waves. Um, now, a good seismometer actually has uh, will have a three axes uh, detector on it. Yes. Now, what you were just I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, please. I was going to say what you were describing before was the strain seismograph. Yes. If I'm not mistaken. Uh, yes. Um, from from some of the research that I had done, I understand that it really you really need to measure, basically, just for the simplification of this and and the fact that we're trying to describe it in an uh, in an audio track, yeah. left to right, up and down. So I'm not up and down, but uh, left and right, north to south. Uh, so you have two different directions: an x axis and a y axis. Yeah, you're measuring those two. And then you do have a, a, a vertical axis too. Yes. Um, and you're, you have pendulums for each of those three. And um, so really we should say, instead of left, right, we should say north, south, yes. east, west. Sorry. Yes. That's much better. Yeah. Um, and, um, and yes. So <laughs> I, I totally lost my, my train of thought. I'm sorry. But, but yes, you have to have the three axes to be able to detect, uh, what kind of earthquake is hitting you. Like mm-hmm. what kind of waves are moving through the ground. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, they have found another way to solve the pen on paper uh, problem because some optical seismographs use mirrors to reflect light onto photosensitive paper that right. is mounted on the drum. Now, there, the uh, the drum in in uh, seismographs that use a drum of paper uh, basically have a if you think about it as a recording point that is mm-hmm. gradually moving around the drum. Right. So it starts it. it it's sort of like uh, a recording drum that you might see um, in those early audio recorders mm-hmm. uh, or uh, a version of the long playing vinyl record. It starts mm-hmm. at one point and gradually goes in a spiral around as the drum goes. So it's recording the movement of the earth as time goes on and the the, the fact that it is moving um, and, and distance too shows you roughly when those uh, – those seismological waves are taking place. Gotcha. Um, and I think that's really a, the, the optical seismograph is an elegant solution to the problem. Of course, uh, since you're using photosensitive paper, that means you also have to be recording this in the dark. Yeah, there there are quite a few uh, seism, uh, seismoscopes and seismometers that um, no longer use uh, pen or paper at all. Mm-hmm. They're just mm-hmm. using various sensors. So that uh, I mean, there's some where they have the paper counterpart as well to show off to the public whenever the public wants to watch it because it's a lot more interesting to see the pen against paper, especially since that's such an iconic image for seism- uh, seismographs. I um, remember seeing the little needle-like pens, you know, then and watching the paper tape yeah. scroll through, and you know, like, yeah. you know scratching. Yeah. And Seismology that... and lie detectors, man. Yep. So it, it is a very it is there is something very satisfying about seeing that. But the truth is, is that a lot of the modern ones just use sensors. Now, let's talk about um, 
identifying where the focus of an earthquake is. Because here's another thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can have the most advanced seismograph or seismometer in the world, uh, and it's not necessarily going to tell you where the focus is. True. What it's going to tell you is how far away the earthquake is. Right. And, and or how far away the focus of the earthquake is. Right. And I think that's um, that's sort of a, a frustrating point for geologists, because yeah. as much as they know, they still have difficulty um, being pinpoint accurate. To, yeah. To, I mean, they're, they're very good at what they do, but they're very good at measuring. Yes. But they're the I think the material inside the earth is difficult for mm-hmm. them makes it makes life rough <laughs> yeah because when you talk about the epicenter of the earthquake you're not saying well you know it's down at the corner of fifth and main you also have to figure out how deep within the earth sure it is and that also it's it you know once it gets down to a certain point it's very very it sort of is obfuscatory you can't really tell as accurately as you would like to um yeah and that, and- that just that just makes these tools the more accurate they become there's still an element of difficulty and, and and to make matters even more difficult, um, the primary waves and secondary waves have different uh, different traits. Primary mm-hmm. waves can move through anything. They move through solids, liquids, and gas. Secondary waves, however, can only move through solids. Mm-hmm. So once they hit the the liquid center, the delicious liquid center of the Earth, mm, I love that. Part. They don't go any further than that. Um, but you know, the, there are there are seismographs out there that are sensitive enough to, at least in theory, detect an earthquake, even if it's happening on the other side of the world. Right. So how do earthquake scientists figure out where the epicenter of an earthquake is? Mm -hmm. They have to consult multiple seismographs. Okay. And they they do it with three of them. And this is going to be familiar to anyone who's done any kind of navigation. Um, the, The reason here is that like I said before, that you measure the difference between the primary wave, the, the time it takes a primary wave and a secondary wave to hit you, and that's how you can figure out how far away the thing is, right? Right. Well, that creates a sphere, a, a virtual sphere around the seismograph, okay? Let's say that we know that the epicenter of the earthquake is 25 miles away from our seismograph. Right. So that's 25 miles in every direction. We, we don't know the origin of this. Right. Now, of course, you can go ahead and say, all right, it's not going to be the sky, but at any rate. Man, can't imagine that. Yeah. So you then call up your buddy who's uh, a couple cities away and say, hey, we just had an earthquake. Do you guys have an earthquake uh, registered on there too? And he says, yeah, yeah, it's 75 miles away. Well, now you take the intersection of your sphere and their sphere, every point where it's 75, you know, where, where those two spheres connect. Mm-hmm. And say, okay, the epicenter is somewhere in here. Then you call up a third, uh, well, a third person. It's your second buddy. You call up your second buddy who's in another city. You say, hey, we had an earthquake. Do you guys notice anything? So yeah, it was thirty miles away. And you take those three, uh, those those three measurements, and that's going to give you a point on the map. It'll actually give you two. You'll get two connections that it could possibly be, but one right. of them is going to be in the sky. Mm-hmm. And that means you can count that one out. The one that's in the the Earth, that's the epicenter of the earthquake. It's trilateration. Okay, I'll try it. <laughs> no, 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 that's T R I. But yeah, it's it, you know it's this idea of it's something that we've used, like I said, in navigation, where you, you mm-hmm. it's like triangulating. It's the same sort of principle: is that you need three points, and from those three points, once you made the measurements, you can figure out where that epicenter is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and that's that's important. That's why so many uh, scientists, especially around the uh, what is known as the Ring of Fire, uh, an area of intense geologic activity, there are scientists all over the world who have uh, access to this kind of equipment, and that's so very important to determining. Um, there are a lot of things that that go into this in addition to just the earthquake and finding out uh, where the epicenter is. Because if you have um, earthquakes, say, off the coast in the middle of the ocean, mm-hmm. they might produce tsunami. Yes. And uh, knowing roughly where the epicenter is can give you an idea of where you might expect to see a tsunami and and uh, roughly how long you might have until you would expect it on shore. Um, so that's uh, very, very important um, and is uh, really, really useful in able, you know, in enabling people to do that. Um, and you can use you can use a uh, seismological uh, equipment to do uh, all kinds of other things, too. They use it in petroleum exploration. Yep. Uh, monitoring volcanic activity. Uh, of course, these, these two are actually very, very closely related. Yeah. Um, That's because sound will move at a different speed depending upon the medium it's moving through. Mm-hmm. And by knowing the speeds that sound moves in and the various uh, medium or media that it can that you could possibly encounter – you can start to narrow down, like, oh, well, this is a likely place for oil versus this. Th- it is unlikely that we would find oil it, were we to drill here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, we talked about a little bit about that in our auto-tune podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the oil drilling yeah. uh, episode, too. Um, so, yeah, these are these are certainly very important devices. And, um, you know, can you think of anything else that we need to yeah, add? Yeah, let's, let's talk really quickly about the Richter scale. Oh, the Richter scale. We haven't even touched on that. So Jeez. Richter scale is – you may have heard about the Richter scale, about that being a way of measuring the magnitude of an earthquake. Mm-hmm. The Richter scale is a scale in which uh, each whole number is uh, ten times more um, powerful, I guess you could say, or, or – has a magnitude. magnitude of 10 times the previous whole number. So mm-hmm. a magnitude 2 earthquake is has 10 times the magnitude of a 1 earthquake. Excellent. And 3 would have 10 times the, the 2. And um, so these numbers get big really quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything below a 4 is pretty much a minor earthquake. And in fact, 3 or lower, you're not likely to feel. Mm-hmm. Anything that's a seven or higher is a major earthquake. That's that's going to cause lots of damage should it hit any populated area. Yes. Um, and some serious uh, side effects can happen, too. We're talking about things like a fissure opening up and magma pouring out or uh, the tsunami, as Chris was mentioning, that could also be a byproduct. Those are those are the really bad ones. Anything that's in the six to seven range is still bad. Bad. It's just mm-hmm. not considered a major earthquake. Right now, that's not the only scale we use to measure earthquakes, or at least not the effects of earthquakes. Mm-hmm. Do you know of the Mercalli scale? No, I don't. Okay, so the Richter scale is more. It's scientific, right? You are actually taking measurements of the earthquake, and you're saying based upon this magnitude, this is how powerful this earthquake was. Right. So it's a, a scientific measurement. The Mercalli scale is more of a subjective measurement. Mm-hmm. The Mercalli scale is the scale of damage done by an earthquake. Oh. Now, for earthquakes where uh, where you can feel the earth uh, shaking, but but mm-hmm. it's not strong enough to actually damage anything, that would be a category two on the Mercalli scale. Okay. So like a, a, a one would be an earthquake you couldn't even feel. 
Right. Now, it goes up to all the way up to 12. That's a quake that's so powerful that's doing major structural damage in the area. So let's let, I'm going to finish up here with one other thing that we we talked that I wanted to talk about. Okay. There was a a discussion recently online about the possibility that solar flares could somehow induce earthquakes and predict earthquakes. Yes, we we had a solar flare not too long ago. And then there was the earthquake in Christchurch. Yes. And so some have said that 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 the solar flare in in effect predicted the earthquake. Uh, I'm not so quick to jump on this. I've done some research. I'll call it preliminary. Mm-hmm. I've done some preliminary research into this, and I can't find any um, accepted scientific study that really points to a connection. There's some that seem to say there's some sort of uh, a connection there, but nothing that's actually, you know, really like nothing that that really grabs me and says this is this is proof. Yes. Uh, most of it seems circumstantial. A lot of it has confirmation bias written all over it, which is a logical fallacy. And I was trying to search around to find, because I, I saw a lot of say, things saying that that, uh, that the solar flare did, in effect, uh, predict the earthquake in Christchurch. Mm-hmm. One, of the, um, one of the sources I found made a, uh, an error that I just wanted to point out. I'm not saying that this is necessarily the the crux of the entire argument or that this is the source. Okay. But it was a blog that, that quoted a NASA uh, scientist and you think, okay, NASA people, they, they know a lot about solar flares. Well, the quote was the total energy in a space quake, which by the way, that's what happens when uh, the energy from a solar flare encounters the earth's magnetosphere. Uh, the total energy in a space quake can rival that of a magnitude five or six earthquake. Now, the blogger chose to interpret this as saying that space quakes cause magnitude five or six earthquakes. That's not the case. What the scientist said was that the amount of energy is equivalent to an earthquake, not that one causes the other. Mm-hmm. Right. And I made a a. a, a I just made up a, an analogy that said if we said that a redwood, a fully mature redwood falling in the forest and hitting the ground had the same amount of, of energy to it, the same amount of force to it that a locomotive moving at 75 miles per hour has, we would not say that a tree falling in the forest causes the locomotive to go 75 miles per hour. There's no connection between the two other than the fact that the magnitude of the energy is the same. So... Now, I'm not saying that there is no connection. I'm saying I can't find any scientific study that gives me a very definitive answer or even a semi-definitive answer. So, uh, But from the geologists that I, I referenced, most of them seem skeptical, saying that really earthquakes mostly, mostly uh, are caused by these plate movements, which are not affected by magnetic phenomena. Okay. Just wanted to head that off. All right. Well, let's. Uh, wrap. I think you clarified nicely. Yeah. Well, I didn't write a blog post this time, at least. Uh, I've I've been doing that. <laughs> Jonathan responds to people who have no interest in what he has to say. I guess that's what blogging is all about, really. When I get down to it. Okay, so let's wrap this up, guys. Uh, that's our our discussion on seismology and seismological equipment. If you have any questions or you want to share some stories, if you've been in an earthquake and you got some uh, some tales to tell. 
You can let us know on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle there is TechStuffHSW, or you can shoot us an email. That address is TechStuff at HowStuffWorks.com, and Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.